Well, Jay, as you know, we love to talk to different people out in the world and about digital music and the things that interest us. And nobody is more interesting than our good friend Will Page. And we only <laughs> sometimes we do audio drops, which are great. But yep. sometimes you just need to have an extended conversation. And this is, I think, the third one we've done with Will Page. Yeah. And I think I'm ready to officially say that he is the Your Morning Coffee podcast economist. Yes. Uh, there I said it. There it is. No, we uh, we love Will Page, and we're so thrilled that he took the time to sit down and talk with us. And just for our listeners, this is all based on an article um, that Will wrote, um, and the headline was, It's Official, Music's a $40 billion business. Global value of music copyright ramps up 14% to $41.5 billion in 2022, with publishers clawing back share. Boy, that's a long headline. But you and I had just such a great conversation with him. So really, without any further ado, let's let's listen into our conversation with Will Page. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Well, it's so good to see you. You begin this report by stating that there's an axiom in lobbying circles that politicians are more likely to respond to bigger numbers than smaller ones. Okay, who are these policymakers and why is this important? Well, I think the undertones of that statement is that ego can trump economics. And I think in the music industry, we can relate to that observation. But in terms of policymakers, you can take a look at anything going through the, the political channels just now. Number one, of course, is AI music. Number two is mechanical licensing collective and the licensing structure in the US and Europe as well. And then when you go down to country by country level, you've got antitrust issues going on. You've had a three-year inquiry into streaming economics in the UK. You've got actual remuneration. The long list of policy issues are out there. But before you can do anything, you've got to get the policymakers here. So I don't care which side you're on and who you're fighting for. We've got to engage. And the best way to engage is with a big number, not a small number. And this is the biggest number we can engage with. And it's a verifiable, robust figure. And the fact that it begins with a four, I think is going to help open doors. 
Indeed. Well, you know, talk about the the evolution of that standalone nine ninety nine price, including adjusting for inflation. Um, and it, it's stunning to think it goes back to in the U.S. at least. Uh, December of 2001, back when Rhapsody got its license to stream what was then a lot of music, 15,000 catalog songs, uh, and which was which was hysterical that they were talking about matching it up to what was a blockbuster rental car. Blockbuster video rental car. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Be kind and rewind. You remember they used to say that? Of course. Of course. (laughs) Wow, that's dating ourselves. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, talking in about about uh, you know when uh, how cheap music has been, and again, even when you adjust for inflation, it's just unbelievable, really, what we're we're talking about price wise. Well, before I do, let me just give you a blockbuster anecdote. I went to a movie maker's breakfast in the Ivy in Covent Garden last week. Some great film writers, script writers, and directors there, and one of them said that when you went into the old video shop as a couple or just two friends or partners, whatever, and you had to decide on what you wanted to watch, you would scan the shelves together and you'd always revert back to something that both people had already seen. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and then we look at Netflix, Disney Plus, and this wealth of choice we have today. I'll just watch Shawshank Redemption. Or I'll just watch Usual Suspects. You play it safe. Too much choice can lead to a paradox, I guess. So to price, yeah, it's bizarre to think, what, three months after 9-11, Rhapsody picked up that license to stream 15,000 catalog songs, not frontline catalog songs, for the 999 price point. And up until what, April, May last this year, we were still looking at a 999 price point, not for 15,000 catalog songs, but for 120 million ISRCs. We're offering more and more and we're charging less and less. And what I do, which is very mischievous, is just to rip inflation out of that nine ninety nine price point over the twenty two year period, and where are we at? Six dollars fifty three. That's interesting, but it's not really how the world works. If you pay nine ninety nine or even ten ninety nine today, it's going to feel like ten ninety nine today. So deflating figures is a mischievous task. The second kind of side of this story is where I take a look at the price per account user, and this is where I think there's something more substantial to dig into, which is. If there's three people paying 15 bucks for a family plan, that's five bucks each. You had a student, that's also another five bucks each. The fact is, a lot of people are not paying 9.99 for music, they're paying less. So I did this blended weighted calculation across a whole bunch of services to say, what is the blended weighted cost per account user at the end of 2016 when we had all big services with family plan in effect? We had all big services with student plan in effect. And I think the price is around about $8.70. It's not $9.99. It's less because of this dilution. And then I rip inflation out of that, which is far more meaningful. Had you joined music streaming in 2016, which is very plausible, and you're still there today, which is also very plausible, how much would that feel like in real terms? And the truth of the matter is it feels like less than a pint of Budweiser. Think about that. A pint of Budweiser yeah. in New York or Brooklyn costs more than all Wells music offline, on demand, and ad-free for a month. For a month. Remember that if your bladder's like mine, that Budweiser's left your system after three hours. But for a month, you've got all the Wells musical repertoire, and it costs less than that pint. And I just think it's it's staggering. Staggering just how cheap it's become. But to hammer the point home, as we were completing that calculation, a big shout-out to Nicholas Lydell, a mathematical wizard who helped model the whole thing together, and... Um, 
when I was modeling it all out with Nicholas Lydell, I got an email at that point sent to me from Netflix saying, we're raising your price to $17.99 a month. I was like, are you staring inside my house here? Are you Do you know what's on my screen? I started with Netflix at $7.99. Now I'm up to $17.99 and I'm using it less. And I've just worked out that you can buy all Welsh music for less than a pint of Budweiser. So I rest my case. Well, when you get that pint of Budweiser, do you have a choice where you could listen to a few ads and then get that Budweiser for free? <laughs> Always worth remembering the ads on Spotify were a deterrent. They were there to piss you off to get you to pay. So back in the early days, I used to take the most unsexy ad ever, like how to fill in your tax return, and place it in playlists which had the word lovemaking in it, and that teach the buggers <laughs> to pay. Conversion was really high. I called it premature conversion, not to be confused with other premature. Uh, yes. Thank you for that. So catalog, and, and I'm doing that in air quotes, it's nearly two-thirds of the music industry today, but but talk about how the industry designates what is catalog and what that picture may actually look like. Well, if Blockbuster's going back a bit, let's go back even further to 1977 when a band called Meatloaf released an album called Bad Out of Hell. What's that got to do with answering your question? It's got a lot to do with answering your question, Jay. Let me kick in why. When in 1991, the entire American population was replacing their vinyl collection with CDs, the one title it had to replace was Bad Out of Hell from 1977. And because we were all buying a CD to replace our vinyl collection, we couldn't get it off the top of the charts. And the chart body looked at this and said, this is daft. Charts are for new albums, not old albums. How do we get rid of Meatloaf? And they invented this catalog rule. If you're more than 18 months old, which Meatloaf clearly was, you're no longer chart legible. Meatloaf is no longer number one. That rule affects so much of today's music economy. It affects how record labels structure their budgets, how they do headcount, who gets promotion, how you engage with streaming platforms, and how we look at charts where we read headlines like, Old music is killing new music. Utter horseshit. Let's put the record straight. The way that we define old is simply out of date. It's too old, as the definition goes. It's antiquated. In a streaming world where you're monetizing consumption, we're not looking at 18 months anymore. My favorite case study, a piece of work about Imagine Dragons, looked at their debut album, did three times as many streams in the second 18 months than it did in its first. What, are you going to drop the band because of that? No, we need new rules for the new schools. So what I did was we street dated half a million ISRCs on the global streaming platform Luminate. Big shout out to Jane, to Scott Ryan, to Helena Kosinski, wonderful people who are always there putting wind in my sail, collaborating with the data so I can do my economics. And we did a donut chart to show where in terms of age is today's streaming come from. And with regards to the calendar year 2022, 90%, Jay, Nine zero ninety percent of streams were from after the millennium, from after 2000, from after Rhapsody, Mikey baby, from after when Rhapsody got that 999 license. 90% of streams. So when we think old means the market is dominated with songs from the 70s and 80s, no, less than 10, less than 10%. By the way, that's a bit of a shock for your Wall Street analysts who are investing in music catalogs to see that chart, thinking it's so lopsided to old music. It's not. It's just that old music isn't that old after all. A bit like myself, right? <laughs> and if, if if you were if you get to wave a magic wand, Will, what do you think the real uh, number should be for how for catalog? Like, naughty. If it's not eighteen months, what do you think it should be? 
I'll kick you something there, Mike. Um, firstly, if you just wanted the past to reflect the present, that is the makeup of a record label's income frontline catalog in the past when it was sales to represent the present, the actual answer after doing all the mathematics is simple. You kick 18 months to 36 months. At that point, 45% of your business is frontline, 55% is catalog. And that's documented in the Imagine Dragons case study. Credit to Timmy and Music Business Well for publishing that as a seminal piece of work. And it got everybody to agree that something had to change. How you want to change it? That's your own private business. But it got consensus. Another more detailed way of thinking about it is just to be agnostic to age. And what I mean by that is, is there are signals in the system, be it on platform, the streaming platform, the Luminate data, be it off platform, the socials, the Instagrams, the TikToks. Is there something there which says a dollar of marketing here is going to give you a positive rate of return? You know, Kate Bush running up that hill, it was deep catalog. There was nothing on Spotify or Apple telling you what was going to happen was going to happen. But if there's something that is, well, you want to put your marketing dollars behind Kate Bush running up that hill because it's going to be a huge upside. And I think there should be a term for that. If I think I'm allowed to you, Momentum marketing could be a useful term, and stock market traders refer to this too. So is there something in the stock that says, buy this stock now, irrespective of is it in my TMT sector or staple sector or you know the typical areas that you invest in? Is there something in this stock which says there's momentum behind it? A little push here is going to push it a whole lot further ahead. I think that's what the music industry needs is to get its head around momentum marketing. You know, one of the things I learned from this report was just the sheer size of the music industry. And you had stated in the in the report that music is now more than twice global cinema worldwide box office. Wow. And just under half of the online video streaming market, uh, but still a fraction of the gaming industry. Where do you see additional growth? Is there still money being left on the table? Uh, yeah. I mean, firstly, the price debate. I think we can get prices up a lot further without seeing net churn. Um, but I do think that we're now at that point of saturation in America and the UK, where I'm literally seeing some services grow and others contract. We know it's going on in the marketplace right now. So, you know, it's all going to come down to price now. We're going to be like telco operators, where the only way you can get RP up is stealing other customers or jacking up your price without having churn. Simples. When you look at the emerging market, there's something that maybe I could do for for your podcast in the future is to give a simple metric to understand when Luminate report huge growth in global streams. Where is that coming from? Because if it's emerging markets, it's not going to be huge growth in global dollars. I always like to joke that you can confuse the per stream in America with the RPU in India, only that's not actually a joke. So... You know, we need some sort of metric like I've talked in the past about trade-weighted exchange rates where you have one simple tool that blends and weights all these variables together. We need some simple metric to understand if I'm seeing 18% growth in the volume of streams, but I know that most of that is coming from emerging markets. That probably equates to 1% growth in monetary value. And we can curb our expectations about how this is going to go forward. That said, you know, just a quick shout out to what's happening in emerging markets. Each is very nuanced. Each has their own characteristics. I don't want to generalize, but if we think about potential for a minute. If you go back to 2001, Rhapsody getting its license, the heyday of the music industry, record label execs taking helicopters to their private jets. If we go back then, how many CD players were in India? How many do you think? 10 million, 40 million? I don't know. 
Parkit, ask this question. How many smartphones are in India today? A lot. Right. Yeah. Count the zeros. Yeah. So that gives you an idea of the potential for emerging markets to far exceed anything that we've seen in the past. Just ignore history, wipe the slate clean. Huge potential there. It's going to take time. We just need to manage our expectations between the volume of streams that's going to come from this region and when the value is going to finally come back into. As you were describing that, I was remembering the last time we spoke to you and you talked to us about herbivores and carnivores. Mm -hmm. and it sounds like that's sort of that world that we're in now. It is. And it's come, and it's come a lot quicker than I thought. I thought it was going to be around about next year. But this year, you started seeing those signs happen in the US and UK, where I'm most au fait with the market intelligence to justify this claim. But you literally have seen some streaming services struggle to grow. Others are breaking away from the pack, and others are shedding a little. But of course, we don't have the public reporting that Netflix has. But it's worth remembering that day when Netflix told Wall Street, for every 100 subscribers we got in, we lost 168. That was the biggest fall in Wall Street history. Boom. I mean, it's recovered. If you're a Y, you'd have stepped off the train and stepped back on it a few days later and ride that wave. But that was a huge fall because we don't really know how to spell the words net churn yet. We've never been there before. But I think next year, we're going to hear more about net churn than anything else. So when we talk about streaming, obviously, it's at least certainly in major markets, it's slowing down, but physical is actually rising, at, at least recently. What do you attribute these trends to and what can be done to grow the overall pie? Uh, yeah, I've got the scientific explanation for you, Mikey Baby. Um, the reason why physical is growing so fast is because it's impossible to roll a spliff on an MP3 file. <laughs> it really is. Jay was just trying it a minute ago, and it's still hard. Yeah, <laughs> didn't. Work. I was referring to him. I do. I don't even know what a spliff is, but you know, apparently that's what the kids you've read say. about them. Yes, is that what but the kids are calling it? <laughs> and no, I think let's let's get into this 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 fascinating area of vinyl. I mean, in the UK and in the US, I think it's fair to say a tenth of all record label income now is coming from vinyl. For indies that specialize in this, I'm hearing it's up to a quarter. Like successful indie record labels, $1 in every four is coming from the platters that matter. And across genres, we're seeing it kick in even more. And hip-hop, I think, is beginning to wake up to vinyl in a way that surprised me. Now you got to deal with some constraints, which is A, production capacity, and B, red tape. And I shout out the company Pressing Business, in my report, that's Fred Goldring and William Hine, two industry veterans, worthy guests of your show, really worthy guests of your show, who are working on the Travis Scott project. What I've seen they those guys do in Poland, of all places, is slash production times down to, we're going to drop an album in two months, and we can speak to pressing business and have something ready to go within two months. Previously, it was three to four months, and the queues were long, and they were fractured. But they're also doing something else. I think this is another thing which is going to unleash more demand for vinyl, is removing red tape. So at Pressing Business, you can go to one stop in Poland that serves seven core markets. For example, you can get around Brexit regulation in the UK. For example, you can get into the US and Latin American markets. So they're able to function it. And I think that's held back the market a lot up until now as well. So A, I think we're getting the production capacity we need. And B, we're getting through the red tape that we need to get through as well. And then to nod to Travis Scott, who reportedly, um, from my understanding, did 500,000 double vinyls at $50 a pop. 
different colors, different covers, versions, that old game that Taylor Swift has been doing, and has shifted well over half of them before the tour even started. Wow. Now, if the production of each of those vinyls is six bucks, you don't need an economist to work out what the gross margin is, and you certainly don't need to remind you, you're never going to see that much margin off a fan through streaming. So, yeah, I I think vinyl's moving into third gear. That's my that's the way I conclude it. There's still ways to go yet in this market. Right. So one of the things I learned from your report, well, there are a lot of things, but there are certain things that I don't typically think about, like exchange rates. And so how are exchange rates, you know, namely the strengthening dollar, how is that affecting some of these revenue figures that you're working with? So when you go back to the inflation question that Mike posed at the start, 1099 feels like 1099 today. No matter what an economist does to manipulate that number, it's going to feel like 1099. I think the same thing with exchange rates. The market is what the market is. The money is what the money is. But I've got to take, and these trade bodies have all got to take, these globally sourced figures, the value of streaming in Japan, the value of physical in Germany, and lock all these currencies into one currency and then express it over time with a constant currency. So if Japan has grown by 9% in 2001, but the exchange rate has fallen by 18% that same year, as you roll that Japan yen value into a US dollar expression, you lose a ton of the value year on year. So if you remember when we discussed a report last year, the number was 39.6 billion, almost by magic, 3 billion vanishes. Now, what I'm stressing to the reader of the report is don't lose faith in me. It's not that I did my sums wrong. It's just that because of this huge volatility in exchange rates, and for me to express it in one currency constantly over time, you've got to make sacrifices. One of the sacrifices is you restate, and in this case, deflate what every previous year was worth. It's a bit of a head F-U-C-K, but it's required in terms of, if we're going to look at global figures, well, we're talking about a lot of currencies. We need to express them in just one. So yeah, publishing. Back at the turn of the millennium, publishers saw about $2.5 billion of mostly CD revenue passed through to them, my favorite word. Passed through, the old school. Yes. Uh, today, publishers are earning about $5.5 billion from streaming. Needless to say, that's that's a big increase. Can publishing sustain this level of growth? I think they can. It's a very sensitive subject, especially in America, where you have a rate-setting board dictating what these publishers are going to see. But I think a few points. Firstly, to stress that when you do this calculation, it's interesting to see that labels walk away with most of the money. One of the reasons they do that is because when you have consumer licensing, that typically favors the label over the publisher. Simple ratio, Spotify gets a label a dollar, they're giving the publisher 29.30 cents. Um, then you have to say, well, okay, labels are benefiting here, but how are publishers doing with that 29, 30 cents compared to the past? And that's the chart that you picked out there, which is compared to how much publishers saw in aggregate. Remember, this is not a songwriter's individual bank account. This is aggregate payments. They're seeing a hell of a lot more than they were seeing from CD sales. So this transition to streaming has been net-net beneficial to publishers with respect to past income streams. We'll park the comparison with labels for a second. We'll come back to that. And I think, broadly speaking, if I look at the UK, you know, publishers would see 8% of a download. They're seeing 16% of a stream. I call that double. 
they've doubled their rev share. They're getting a bigger share of the platform and they're getting more revenue in today's terms than they were seeing in yesterday's terms. But the important point of making that comparison is to hammer home this thing, which is that we can look at consumer revenues and say the world pivots around subscription streaming. It doesn't. The whole purpose of the report is to understand holistically all the sources of revenue that come into the business. And when it comes to business licensing, that typically pays the publisher more and the record label less. Radio, for example, will pay the publishers in the UK far more than it pays the record labels. And in America, it pays the publishers something and it pays record labels nothing because there's four countries in the world where radio doesn't pay record labels. The Democratic Republic of Congo, North Korea, Zimbabwe, and the United States. So you're in great company, Mikey. Um, so it's just really important that we step back from that analysis and remind ourselves, consumer revenues, labels win, publishers lose. Business revenues, publishers win, labels lose. I want to encourage a holistic debate about fairness and avoid the cherry picking that goes on, which is there's an imbalance and that's unfair. Well, that's not the only imbalance that's there. There's other imbalances too. So before we let you go, I, number one, I want to compliment you on such an amazing report, not only informationally, but it's a beautiful report. It's really easy on the eyes. And I think it people is. are afraid inherently of analysis and data and charts and graphs and stuff. But if you make it so they can kind of glance and get a sense of what's going on, and I think you did a really good job of that. Well, on that, just real quickly, can I just give a three big shout outs? One to Sam Blake, based over in Los Angeles, yay. Uh, he's my copy editor. He takes my Scottish gobbledygook and turns it into coherent prose. <laughs> um, Alice Clark, the designer, um, a wonderful designer who just knows how I think and is able to underline and illustrate and make words jump off the page. And thirdly, to my father, Dave Page, back in Scotland, who always taught me to teach economics from the age of 11. He said at the age of 11, he said, focus when you teach economics to people who A, don't think they're going to understand it, B, don't want to understand it, but C, have to. So when I write that report, those yeah. three lessons are really front of mind. The, the last question I, I have for you is, as you're putting these things together, you've been doing this a while and you, you, you could probably make some assumptions on where some things are going, but were, was there any surprises? Did anything come out at you and you went, wow, that's unexpected? I'll tell you something on the exposure this report got, which was unexpected. And then I'll turn to some of the contents that was unexpected. On the exposure side, when you get the report ready, I don't have anyone who runs comms for me. So it's like, who are you going to give it to? Journalists like Dogs on Heat wanting an exclusive and the Financial Times came in saying, we want to run this in Monday's paper. And I asked a few people who work in comms, I said, well, do I give it to trade? Do I give it to... I said, Will, the Financial Times is saying they're going to stick it in Monday's paper. You don't second question that. <laughs> it, but it's an incredible paper. One of the few that still use these fact checkers want to stress that point. And for six hours, Jay, it was the top story in the Financial Times before the Gaza conflict took over. I think that's more to do with the picture of Dua Lipa than it is to do with my dollars dishwater economics. I think it's a little but, of both. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, for six hours, there it was. Top, I screenshotted it. Top story. Congratulations. And, you know, cool. for this work, which started off as a little pet project nine years ago, to now get top story, albeit for six hours in the FT, for me, that's payback. I'll take it. Oh, I like absolutely. teaching and I'm teaching more people. And in terms of the numbers, I mean, I still think there's so much more to be added in here. Um, I touch on this towards the end, which is if you look at media's fine work in this space, they always come up with numbers that are higher than the IFPIs. I think they're doing their homework more in three areas. Firstly, understanding the DIY sector. I was allowed to say 
last year that one in 10 streams on Spotify is coming from DIY artists. That means a tenth of the recorded music industry doesn't involve record labels. Think secondly, understanding the independent label sector, which is getting busier and busier. You know, companies like Fuga and Believe, you know, these people are not sitting on their laurels. They're hungry for market share and they're getting some market share. And then thirdly, the emerging markets. So if you look at South Korea, was an outlier, now it's top 10 and it's probably going to be top five soon. You know, I think major labels there are 23% of all income. So this task of how do you size the market, how do you calculate it, it's, you know, a technical issue here, but it's really important, which is, I think even with the current numbers, we're still missing a trick. This business could be closer to 50 billion than we might think. And if that is the case, when I come back to you this time next year, that means it's doubled since I first did the report. And that would be saying something. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's a big number. And just, just quickly, does anything scare you though, Will? Is there anything that you've seen that's like, Hmm, you talk about smoke signals, you know, is there anything that's kind of like, hmm, that's interesting and maybe not so good? I worry. So far, so good on the AI music debate, but I do worry that lawyers lead to knee-jerk reactions, which leads to lack of progress. But so far, the signs are good that we're actually not going to make mistakes that we made with Napster back in 1999. We're going to work out a way of embracing this technology, but I, I just hope it's not just lawyers in the room. The purpose of economics is to counterbalance law. We both have points to bring to the table. We both come at things from different perspectives. But I'm encouraged that that, that so far has been a positive um, as well. Um, so, you know, again, it's just that concern of just to make sure that economics has been applied in the decision-making of this industry to help steer this shit forward. There's always going to be headwinds. There's always going to be tailwinds. You're always going to need lawyers, but you also need economics to balance it all off. Will, it, it's always such a pleasure to talk with you. Tell our audience you know, where they can find Pivot, where they can listen to your podcast, where can they learn more about you? Well, the website, first of all, is pivotaleconomics.com. And I built that website with two people in mind, students and executives. It's just a resource base where you can get all of my past work. Every single global value of copyright is up there, including loads of other articles and writings that, that can help somebody doing exams this fall. Um, and somebody making big executive decisions this minute. So that's up there. And then to the podcast, and you know, I know you're a listener, Jay, but we're going to reach our 100th episode yeah. on the 27th. Congratulations, wow. man. Congratulations. That's huge. And the podcast is called Bubble Trouble. It's myself and Rich Kramer, brilliant presenter, far better than me. Mm. And the whole podcast is there to explore why, like the boy who cried wolf, do we always find ourselves getting back into bubble troubles? You know, why do we never learn? You know, the who, the band, the who, why do we, when will we not get fooled again is what's in my mind. And as the stock market went down, our audience started to go up. There was a clear relationship there of, ah, Facebook's falling through the floor. I might have to start listening to bubble trouble. Anyways, big news. After Five years of praying this would happen. We have got Andy Fastow, the former CFO of Enron, to do a two-hour special for our 100th episode. There's no bigger bubbler troubler than Enron, and he was the guy <laughs> who made it go under. And if I can give a teaser for your audience, when I first met Andy Fastow, he stood on stage with two objects in his hand. In one hand, he held the CFO of America Award, the highest accolade in corporate America. On the other hand, a 10-year prison sentence card. And he asked, how is it possible that I can be given both things within six months of each other? Wow. Only in America. 
And if that doesn't make you want to tune into this conversation, I don't know what will. Nice he, teaser. He absolutely knocks us out with the best yeah. show we've ever done. All right. Well, oh, fantastic. give my best to Richard. Uh, first time caller, long time listener. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Thanks again, Will. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Will. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.